0: And I'd invite you to open up your Bibles to John chapter 12, John chapter 12, it's on page 1066 in the Pew Bible, John chapter 12, page 1066. Today we conclude John chapter 12 and we come to the the end of the first major section of the book, John 1 to 12 uh, covers Jesus' public ministry. And then starting in chapter 13, next Sunday, we'll move into the second major section of the book, which uh, deals with Jesus' Last Supper and Good Friday and Easter Sunday. But today, John chapter 12, and look at John chapter 12, verse 37, it says, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence... They still would not believe in him. At the end of chapter 12, we reach not only the end of the chapter, but the end of Jesus' public ministry. It's the time when he concludes his uh, preaching and teaching. And it appears that here, at the end of chapter 12, at the end of his public ministry, that he has failed as the Messiah, is what it seems. He's done all these miracles and they wouldn't believe. He's traveled all over the land. He's gone way up into the north, to Galilee, down the south in Judea. He even went through Samaria and preached the gospel there. He's preached everywhere he could preach. He's preached in the synagogues, in the villages, in people's houses. He's gone uh, out into the countryside and preached to great multitudes. He's done miracles. He's healed the sick. He's opened the eyes of the blind. He's driven out demons. He's taken a little bit of bread and used it to feed 5,000 people. He even has his capstone miracle, you might call it in John, John chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. He's done all these signs, all these miracles, and he's preached and preached. And the main message of his preaching is, you know, if you had to summarize Jesus' main message in the Gospel of John, uh, I would simply put it this way. Jesus' message is, Believe in me and you will have eternal life. If you want to get to the nutshell of what John is saying over and over, he's saying, I'm the light of the world. I'm the bread of life. I'm the one sent from the Father. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the main message is, believe in him and have eternal life. And so he's preached it and demonstrated it with miracles. And here we come to the end of chapter 12, to the end of his public ministry, where Jesus, in a sense, kind of gets his report card, gets his. Uh, annual evaluation and it says even after he had done all these miraculous signs in their presence they still would not believe in him and so it appears that jesus is the messiah that no one believes in that he somehow failed of course some people believed in him but they were a very small group they were his disciples Uh, but overall, generally speaking, you could say of the, the people of Israel, they did not believe, even though some believed, there was the, the overarching assessment is they didn 't believe. The Pharisees wanted to kill him. The people who liked his miracles were pretty fickle, as we've seen, you know they, they were easily swayed by what the miracle was when he was feeding the 5,000. Of course, they liked him. it was free food. And, you know, free health care. But when, when it wasn't uh, healings and food, then it was like, well, I'm not so sure. So, so even the faith that they had was sort of back and forth, and, and it was very fickle. When you come right down to it, very few believed, so much so that John could generalize and say, they didn't believe him. They didn't believe in him. And so it raises the question, why didn't they believe? What did Jesus do wrong? Why why weren't they believing? Did did he not present it the right way? Did he not package it the right way? Did he not spin it or set it up the right way? Was he not bold enough? Was he too bold? Did he offend the wrong people? Like what, What did he do? How did it come to this? How is it that if Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, Israel did not believe in him? That's not just a question for Israel because we know that Jesus is not just the Messiah of Israel. One of the other main themes we've seen in John is that he is also the Savior of the world. You know, He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. So we know Jesus is the the Messiah awaited for in, in the Hebrew Scriptures, but he's also the Savior of the world. We could put the same question to the world. If Jesus is the Savior of the world, why doesn't the world believe in him? You know, it's, it's a bigger question than just Israel. It's the whole world. Why does the world believe in him? You know, some people in the world believe in him. Some people in this room believe in him. But you couldn't say generically as a generalization that uh, Jesus is the Savior of the world and the world believes in him. That's not what you see in the world today. You can't even say Jesus is the Savior of the world and the South Shore believes in him. I mean, you just can't say that. And so the mystery of unbelief is in front of us. Why why is there unbelief given who Jesus is and all that he has done? Why was it there in that day? Why is it that way in the world today? So what was it? Again, what did he do wrong? What are we doing wrong? And John answers that in verses 38 to 41. But his answer might surprise us. His answer isn't, well, Jesus you know, they didn't believe in him because he kind of botched the presentation or he did this or that. The answer is they didn't believe because that's what the scriptures foretold would happen. Or to put it differently, that was the plan of God. Look at this. Check this out. If Jesus is the Messiah of the world or if Jesus is the Savior of the world, why, didn't, why doesn't the, the world believe? Look at what, look what how uh, John answers it. In verses 38 to 41... John quotes two passages from the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah, and he's basically saying the unbelief of the people is a fulfillment of these two passages from the Old Testament. All right, so here it is, verse 38. This was, in other words, this unbelieving was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Here's quote number one Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, here's quote number two, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their ears so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, and I would heal them. So the unbelief, uh, the unbelieving response that Jesus receives is a fulfillment of Isaiah. That's what John says. So what I want to do this morning is I'd like us to take just a little bit of time to look at these two passages in Isaiah and get a sense of how those passages are seen as fulfilled in Jesus. And then once we've kind of done a little digging around, understanding Isaiah, then I want to step back and say, okay, what does this mean for us? As we confront the mystery of unbelief, in our own world and in our own lives, in our own families sometimes. What do we do with this? What are the takeaways and applications? So let's look at, at this in Isaiah. So what I want to do is look at these two passages in Isaiah. So there's the first one in verse 38. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Put a bookmark here in John. You know, grab something. Grab your neighbor's wallet, whatever. Put it in there. Use it as a bookmark, John chapter 12. And turn back to Isaiah chapter 53, it's on page uh, 731 if you're using a pew Bible. If you're kind of new to the Bible and you're new to Isaiah and you feel like you're just kind of getting your bearings here, this is a great Sunday for you to be here because we're going to be looking at Isaiah and Isaiah is one of the, not only one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, but these two passages we're going to look at are two of the most important passages in Isaiah. Isaiah. So if you were going to know sort of something about Isaiah, this would be something to know. So this is a great Sunday for you to be here if you kind of feel like a newbie to all of this uh, because we're going to be looking at sort of uh, famous passages in Isaiah that John says are fulfilled in Jesus and in the fact that people didn't believe. So here's the first one, Isaiah 53 verse 1, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So there it is. John says that verse is fulfilled in the unbelief of the crowds in response to Jesus' ministry. Now, what is Isaiah 53 about? Well, if you step back and look at the whole of Isaiah 53, this is one of the most famous passages in Isaiah. It's a description of the future sufferings of the Messiah. It, you know, that the Messiah would come and he would suffer. And it's, it's Jesus and the, the passion of the Christ. It's what Jesus went through for us, for our sins. I mean, check this out. This is so amazing. Written 700 plus years before the sufferings of Christ and predicted in such detail. Look at verse 5, for instance. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. He's crushed, he was pierced, and not only that, that he suffered, I mean a lot of people have been hurt and wounded in life, but he suffered for our sins. It was a unique kind of suffering. This is the gospel right here in Isaiah. Or, or look down at uh, verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And then after he's pierced and crushed and suffers and dies and goes to the grave, look what happens in Verse 11. After the suffering of his soul, after all of that, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. There's the resurrection. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. There's justification through the death and resurrection of Christ. The whole gospel is laid out in Isaiah 53. It's all there. It's the gospel of Isaiah. It's an amazing passage. No wonder why when the first believers came to believe in Jesus and, and they'd come from within Judaism and they went to talk to their fellow Jews, they would open up Isaiah 53. You know, you look at a lot of the New Testament writings, Isaiah 53 just pops up all over the place. Um, but anyway, so here's the point. Isaiah 53 predicts a Savior who would not only be pierced, not only be crushed, not only be killed, but a suffering Savior who would also be Disbelieved, and so the sufferings of Christ didn't just begin once he was arrested in Gethsemane. The sufferings of Christ started, in some sense, during his whole ministry. As from the get-go, he was rejected and opposed, and harassed, and argued with, and threatened, and bullied, and intimidated, or they tried to do those things, and they didn't believe. They didn't believe. That was part of his suffering so I, I think what going back to john 12 so now put your bookmark in isaiah so we're going to come back to isaiah go back to john 12 when it says in john 12 you know why didn't the crowds believe it's because jesus was fulfilling his task to be the suffering savior and that suffering began with the fact that people just didn't believe him it hurts not to be believed it's painful to have people, you know, to pour out your heart and to preach and to talk to your blue in the face and have people go, yeah, right. It's not, it doesn't feel good. I it mean, it's part of the, the rejection and the humiliation and the shame that Jesus was suffering. And so John says the reason they didn't believe is, well, this was the path of, to the cross for the Messiah, which then, chapter 13, we go right into him being pierced and crushed in all of his sufferings. But there's another scripture that's fulfilled. There's another reason they didn't believe based upon Isaiah. It not only fulfills Isaiah 53, if you look at John 12, it also fulfills Isaiah 6. Look, it says in verse 39 of John 12, John 12:39. 12, For this reason they could not believe, they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, He has blinded their eyes, He's dead in their hearts, they could neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Okay, put your bookmark here. Go back to Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Another famous passage in Isaiah that you just got to know about if you're going to appreciate Isaiah even a little bit. Isaiah chapter 6, page 680. This is the vision of when Isaiah saw God. It's awesome in the true sense of the word. Isaiah 6.1. Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He had a vision. He saw God seated on his throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, so they're these angels, with each with six wings or whatever they were. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. With two they were flying. So they're covering themselves in the presence of God, and they were calling to one another, "Holy, holy, holy, is the Lord Almighty." The whole earth is full of His glory. And that's, that's where they uh, based that hymn. Holy, holy, holy. That's this verse that inspired that. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts shook, and the uh, doorpost and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. An awesome picture of the majesty and holiness and might, and glory of God, and look what Isaiah says, he says, woe to me, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, I'm I'm a sinful man, and I live among a people of unclean lips, all my neighbors are sinners, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty, his, God's holiness just lights up Isaiah's sinfulness, and he's like, I'm done for, holiness, sinfulness can't live in God's presence, But look what God does, verse 6. One of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. The altar, of course, is where sacrifices for sin are made. So again, here's the gospel. A sacrifice for sin, to cleanse your sins. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And so now sinful Isaiah stands forgiven because of the sacrifice that was made for his sins. Then you got to get this, verse 8. Now, now a, uh, a posting comes up on the job board. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah takes it before reading the fine print, before reading the job description. He just says, Here am I. Send me. And God says, Okay, go. Here's the message. Be, tell the people, tell Israel, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make Make the heart of the people callous. Not their heart. You hear that? Make it callous. Make their ears dull. Close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Wow, that's a weird verse. What? Okay. God picks a prophet. You're going to go speak for me, Isaiah. I need you to send a message to people. And what's going to happen is you're going to speak to the people, and as a result of you speaking to them, it's going to make them not believe so that they can't believe and come back to me. Like, why, why would God do that? I thought he was trying to get people to believe in him, not send a prophet to kind of make people not believe in him. This is a really strange passage. What is this? What's going on here is that that God is sending Isaiah to preach a message of judgment on Israel because they haven't been following him. Israel has been worshiping idols. Israel has been breaking God's laws. Israel has been corrupt and immoral. And they've crossed a line where God finally says, I will now bring judgment on you. And the judgment is I'm going to harden you into your way so that you're just going to keep going down that path and, and not going to be able to turn back. It, it, it's a sort of hardening judgment. It, it's a judicial hardening. It's a, it's a response to where they had come from. You know, if, if you have time today or some other time you want to look at this more, go back and read Isaiah chapters 1 through 5. You'll see a devastating critique of the idolatry and the immorality of Israel. And so now Isaiah is giving a kind of ironic judgment where he says, fine, you're going to be that way? then you're going to stay that way. You know, they worshipped idols. Think about this. This, Think about this. Think about an idol, a little statue. I was in India this summer and, you know, it was interesting to see sort of literal idolatry again. You know, you walk down the street, there's a store that sells chickens, there's a store that sells mopeds, and there's an idol to the rat god. And you can go in and, and bow before the rat god and pray for whatever, I don't know what the rat god does, every, every god, you know, some hundreds of thousands of gods in in, uh, Hinduism, And, and you can go pray. And So there's this little statue that's a little idol. Think about a statue. Think about that little doll or that little figurine. It has eyes, but they do not. Idols have ears, but they do not. They have heads and chests, but there's no understanding in them. And so I think there's an ironic judgment taking place where God's like, You don't want to worship the living God who saved you out of Egypt? You want to worship statues? Well, guess what? You get to become spiritually like what you have worshiped. I will make your spiritual eyes blind, your spiritual ears deaf, just like those dead, stupid gods you're worshiping. So it's kind of ironic judgment, a judicial hardening on the people who've worshiped idols instead of the living God. Now go back to John 12. John is saying in John 12, there's two, re- you know, the reason these people aren't believing is, one, it's part of the Messiah's suffering, and two, there's, there's a judgment taking place here where God has hardened and blinded uh, the people. You know, if you look at the history of Israel, this is how it always was with Israel. It's how it was back in the days of Moses. There's some people who believed, Moses, and a few of other people, but as a whole, the nation didn't. You know, you think about uh, Moses sends the 12 spies into Israel, and they come back. Two spies say, let's do it. We can trust God. We can do what God says. And 10 spies say, forget it. And the people go with the 10 spies. And so throughout Israel's history is this pattern of a small remnant who believe and a large majority who don't believe. And it was going on in Isaiah's day and in John's day. It's just the same thing uh, all over again. And so God hardens as a judgment. And so the picture we have here is that that Jesus' ministry is met with unbelief, not because Jesus fouled up the presentation, not because he sort of said the wrong thing to the wrong people at the wrong time. It's because God is sovereign, and God has a plan and a purpose, and he's using that unbelief for, as part of the Messiah's sufferings for our sins and He's using it even as a hardening upon a hardened people and an unbelieving people and they're being consigned to their unbelief in a sense. It's really incredible. It's really heavy. So what do we do with this? I'd just like to meditate on this a little bit because again, this is not just sort of a problem of Israel. I think this is a problem of humanity. Jesus is not just the Messiah of Israel, he's also the savior of the world. And just as Israel didn't believe, so the Messiah uh, so, so the world doesn't believe either. You know, unbelief is not a Jewish problem. It's a human problem. And I think in many ways Israel's history is meant to serve as a microcosm of the history of of humanity. And and it's it's a little picture of the big dynamic that's taking place. It's not just the sons of Abraham. It's all the sons of Adam who respond this way to the revelation of God. And so, so this is a question for us, too, as, as we think about the world in which we live, where we face unbelief, as we try to interpret people not believing, and what do we do with that, how do we understand it? And so based on this passage and thinking about our, our own situation I'd like to make just three meditations or three observations or kind of applications that that we can take away as we wrestle with the mystery of unbelief in our own experience. So here's the first observation or meditation. Number one, pick up the cross, carry the cross of gospel rejection. Carry the cross of gospel rejection. Here's what I mean. Jesus suffered jesus went to the cross jesus suffered rejection he suffered all these things and he tells everyone who's going to follow him what pick up your cross and follow me and so christians have always understood that part of the christian life is a a life of death it's dying to yourself Uh, for some christians down through church history they have literally been crucified for their faith in jesus that's happened sometimes Uh, Not all the time. Some Christians, many Christians, have died in other ways for their faith. There are people in the world today who are giving their lives up for their faith at the rate of tens of thousands a year. Uh, uh, Sometimes that's meant people have suffered. People have given up all kinds of things as they've taken up their cross. I don't know if anyone in this room will ever be called upon by the Lord to give his or her life for Jesus. That might happen. I don't know if it will. But I bet you this, I bet you anyone here who wants to talk to others about Jesus will have to bear the cross of rejection and opposition, that just as Jesus had to pick up that cross, and part of his sufferings, according to Isaiah 53, was that he wouldn't be believed, so part of what we have to face is that as we go out to the world to talk about Jesus, we have to experience the pain of not being believed. It's painful, again, when people don't believe. It really hurts. It's something deep inside. I was talking to a, a couple in our church. Uh, they're sort of new to the church, been here a couple years. They're from Texas originally, and I was talking to them this week. And, um, and, and they've, you know, just got really involved in their communities. They really love it here in New England. They'd like to stay long term. Um, and, and they've gotten to know people. And, and the, the wife was saying, Boy, I'm sharing Christ, and I'm trying to talk about the Lord. She says, whenever I bring up God or Jesus or even just the word church, she says, it's like the wall just goes right up. She's like, you know, it wasn't like that in Texas. I'm like, yeah, I don't know, I know. You know, yes, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. Um, it's different here. You know, that wall goes up, and you start mentioning something to people, or even just like, well, I was at my church the other day. Oh, well, What'd you say? You know. And nobody likes to talk to a wall. Who likes talking to walls? That's a very discouraging proposition to talk to a wall. And think about it, you know we're we're sharing Christ. Christ is the most precious thing to us if you're really a Christian. And you know, that's why we sing all these love songs to Jesus because we love Him and He's our Savior and we worship and honor Him. And so when you come to someone and you lay out the most precious treasure you have and they're like, whatever, you believe that, okay, you know. You know, it's like hurt me once, shame on you. Hurt me twice, shame on me. Okay, not going to go there anymore. I don't want to be stepped on. I don't want to be rejected like that. And so we just sort of say, okay, that's not safe. I'm not going to bring it up. I'm not going to talk about that. Maybe should I, just stop? I should just stop talking about it because it's going to happen again. What's the point? Jesus faced the same rejection, the same unbelief, and he never stopped talking. He just kept preaching and preaching, and they didn't believe. And he kept preaching, and they'd threaten him, and they'd harass him and argue with him. And he kept preaching and preaching all the way. He took up the pain and the, the cross of gospel rejection. I think about that passage in Matthew where Jesus cries out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long have I longed to bring you under my wings? You know, you just hear his heart. Oh, Jerusalem, this unbelieving people. Oh, I wish you would come and believe. And and our hearts cry out sometimes. Oh, Hingham, oh, Hingham. Oh, Weymouth, oh, Weymouth. Oh, Quincy and Braintree. How long, how long will you reject the Lord? It's even more personal for us. It's, oh, my father and my mother. How long? Oh, my son and my daughter, how long? My brother, my sister, my best friend, my spouse of many years, how long will you hold the Lord at arm's length? It just hurts. There's just no, there's no getting around it. There's no you know, pill you can take to make that pain go away. It's just a deep hurt of the soul. It is a cross to bear, it is suffering. And our natural response to suffering is to withdraw and run away. And I just want to encourage you, take up your cross, keep praying, keep sharing. Don't stop speaking whenever the Lord gives you an opportunity. It's part of following Jesus. Meditation number two. Meditation number one, take up the cross. Take up the cross of gospel rejection. Meditation number two, leave the results of the gospel to God. So take up the cross of gospel rejection number two, leave the gospel results to God. In other words, it's not, it's not up to us to ultimately bring someone to the Lord. If there's any theme that just comes out loud and clear in these verses, it's the sovereignty of God over salvation. As it says in Romans, God has mercy on whom he has, wants to have mercy. He hardens whom he wants to harden. And, and so the, here, there's also the sovereignty of God in salvation. We see the pleading and earnestness for people to believe, and yet also the recognition that God is sovereign. You've got to hold those two together. You can't have one without the other, or you have an imbalanced sort of view of God and, and of uh, the gospel ministry. So, but at the other hand, we also have to, to see that God is sovereign. We, we can't control who ultimately believes or who doesn't. The problem isn't you know, how we're presenting Jesus necessarily. It's just that God has to open up hearts. We, we can't control that. You know, um, I, I'm going to do something I, I don't usually do a lot. I'm going to just repeat an illustration. <laughs> I, I used this illustration about six, seven months ago. Some of you may not have heard it. Some of you did, but I'm, you probably feel like me. You've totally forgotten it. But I just want to repeat it. I just want to drive this home. This is so important. So, so here's the uh, re- totally repeated illustration. So often we approach sharing about Jesus with people like we're uh, a cat burglar who's cracking a safe. You know, cat burglars cracking a safe. You know, you know, in the movies, someone's cracking a safe. They sneak in at night, and then they get their little stethoscope. They put it up to the safe, and then they listen for the tumblers. You know, click, 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 click. <gasps> Click, click, click. You know, just got to get the right combination. You can't go one too far. You can't go one too short, or the thing won't open. And sometimes I think that that's how we approach it. Like, if people are going to believe in Jesus, we have to figure out the right combination. I need to say this. Oh, don't say that though. That might turn them off. And they asked a question. I said this, but if I had said that, oh, that's why they didn't believe is because I did this, or or I brought them to church. And, and this was done in church, or they sang that song, and oh, if they hadn't sang that song, or the preacher hadn't said this, then it wouldn't have turned them off. Oh, why did they have to be preaching about predestination when I came to church? You know, that, oh, no one's gonna believe now, you know? And, and so we're so, like, worried about getting all the circumstances right, as if we're the ones turning the dial and opening the heart. We can't open anybody's heart. I can't even open my own heart. And the reason I became a Christian isn't because I figured out my own combo. It's just that God put some dynamite in me and blew the door off. It's called being born again. It's something that happens to you. It's not something you do to yourself. Just like being born isn't something you do to yourself. It's, just, it, it's something that's done to you. God opens the heart. Our job is instead to be not like safe crackers, but like paper boys and paper girls. You remember paper boys, paper girls? This was before we had paper men and paper women in cars. There, there used to be paper boys and paper girls, I don't know when that happened, but I just realized the other day it's happening. But it used to be little kids and bicycles with a big sack and papers in it, and there was a, a real art and science to balancing your bike and not falling over while you throw things and avoid things in the sidewalk. Anyway, the pa- what's the paper boy or paper girl's job? It's just to put the papers on the front porch. You know, every day, deliver the paper. It's not the paperboy's job to make sure that the person picks up the paper. It's not the paperboy's job to make sure the person actually unfolds and reads the paper. It's not the paperboy's job to make sure that the person believes what they're reading in the paper. We just have to deliver it faithfully, accurately. Don't throw it in the bush. Get it on the front porch. But accurate. And then you have to leave it to the Lord. So... God is sovereign. We we can't control belief. He's the Lord and He uses all things for His purposes. We don't even know if the people who don't believe today might not believe tomorrow. I don't know. We're just delivering the paper. So hold those two together. You know, uh, feel the pain of unbelief. Don't don't become callous to it. Don't be like, well, I said the name of Jesus and they didn't believe, so that's their problem. No, let it break your heart. Unbelief should break our hearts. Grieve it. Grieve unbelief, but don't own unbelief. Grieve it, but don't own it. As you grieve it, put it in the hands of the Lord. Meditation number three. Last one. So the first one is take up the cross of gospel rejection. Number two, leave gospel results in God's hands. And here's the third one I think the most important. Obvious, blatant one in this passage, and it's the third meditation, which is just believe in the gospel of Jesus. I think that's the most glaring takeaway from this passage, believe in the gospel of Jesus. Ultimately, I think chapter 12 is here not only to explain unbelief, but it's a warning not to participate in unbelief. Um... You know, it's, these people don't believe. And you know, part of the message here is don't be like these people who don't believe. You know, don't cross some line where God says, that's it, I'm hardening you into unbelief. And you're like, have I crossed that line? When do I cross the line? I don't know where the line is. I just know there is one, and that scares me. And, and we shouldn't test God's patience forever and think that God's patience just goes on and on as long as we want to play with sin and ignore him. You know, don't, don't push, don't test the Lord. Don't put him to the test. It, it's not like, well, I'm going to, you know, have my fun and I need to party now and sow my weld oats and, and, you know, maybe 10, 20 years from now I might come back to this. You might not be alive a year from now. You need to, to think about the Lord today. Don't test the Lord and press on in unbelief as if 30 years from now after partying and living your life the way you want, 30 years from now it's going to be easy to wake right up and believe in Jesus or something. It's going to be harder. So don't put the Lord to the test. Don't go down the path of unbelief. Look at verse uh, 42 and 43, just to finish out this chapter. Yet at the same time, even many among the leaders believed in him. Oh, that's good news. So it sounds kind of positive. But then it turns negative. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they love praise from men more than praise from God. Maybe you're feeling stirrings of belief and faith in you. And that's good. But, but, but don't let the fear of men and the love of the praise of men and, and of the world keep you from confessing Jesus. Don't be this closet secret Christian. You can't. You, you've got to love the praise of God more than the praise of men. There's always this fear that if you follow Christ, whatever circle you're in, will become a closed circle to you. Instead of being inside the circle, you'll be out of the circle. Maybe your circle is your friends. Maybe the circle is your family. Maybe it's your kids, the kids at school. Maybe it's a dating relationship in, you're in and you don't want to lose that dating relationship. Whatever it is, there's some circle. And we're always worried that if we confess Jesus, we'll be outside the circle. You can't let that stop you. You know, you have to believe and you have to confess Him and follow Him. And then in verses 44 to 50, last little bit here, Verses 44 to 50 are interesting because Jesus is speaking and he, he says things here that are, are pretty much repeats of things he said in the previous part of the book. He's just kind of rehearsing things. But the basic message is this. Jesus is God. If you see Jesus, you see God. You hear Jesus, you hear God. So however you respond to Jesus is your response to God. And if you don't respond to Jesus in faith you've not responded to God in faith. And if you respond to Jesus by believing, then you've believed in God. So again, look, let me just read verses 44 to 50. Then Jesus cried out, when a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me, right? When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. If you see Jesus, you see God. Therefore, it makes sense that he's come into the world as a light so that the one who believes in me should, uh, should not stay in darkness. As to the person who hears my word does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I speak will condemn him at the last day. For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know what his command leads to eternal life, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. I'm from God. I'm speaking God's words. If you look at me, you see God. Jesus is saying, therefore, to believe in Jesus is to believe in God. To deny Jesus is to deny God. So the application just is just put out there for us at the very end. Believe in Jesus. It has eternal consequences how we handle Him. And so that's the third meditation. Believe in, in Jesus. And, and I guess I just want to close by asking you, you know, why, what is keeping you from believing in Jesus? You've seen... You've seen him in his word. You've read about him. You've seen his miracles. Every day when you get up and you see the sunrise, you see the hand of God. The person who drags you to church or your friends who are Christians, you you know it. Admit it. You've seen their life. Their life is different. God has done a miracle in them. God is at work. He's even answered some prayers. You've even seen some weird coincidences, how God has worked in, in different times in life. You, you've seen it. You know it's true. You've heard the gospel. You know, you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Can you really deny that? You know that's true. You're not okay. I'm not okay. We're sinners in need of a Savior. And Jesus is has come to pay the penalty for sinners. It's the only gospel. What are you going to believe in? Karma? Like you're going to get it right next time? You know, that every every life you're going to keep living new lives and you're going to Im- progressively improve yourself? Where's the evidence of that? That sounds so discouraging. I'm never going to get it right. I don't need karma. I don't need another chance. I need a Savior. And Jesus is that Savior. He's the only God, and he's the only God who ever came down to die for me. I've never heard of a story like that. That's not the kind of story people would make up, that God would give his own son. That's amazing. It's is. Gospel truth. This is divine, heavenly truth. You know all of this. So what? What is it? What is keeping you from the Lord? I just want to plead with you. I don't know what else to do except just plead with you and pray for you. Just say, "Don't keep holding Jesus off. Believe in Him and have eternal life." Well, I pled. Let's pray. Let's pray. I just invite you to take your uh, this moment and in your own words to God and your own heart, just invite you to, to admit to God that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And as God gives you grace, would, would you confess that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior, and would you believe in Him? Heavenly Father, we pray for Your mercy. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. Amen.